Lord, we bless you. We praise your name. We thank you that you are holy. You are distinct, holy, pure. You are our God, our keeper, our savior and sustainer. We come before you as we lift our prayers and seek your word together and ask that you would open it to our understanding that by your spirit you would teach us your truth. May we grow in the light of scripture today, drawing, we pray, according to your purposes, those who know you not as Savior, to the light of His saving grace. We pray also for those who do know you, that you would bring conviction and understanding and growth. Please meet with us here and fill us with your Spirit and fill our ears with the Word and may it trickle down into our soul and be our sustaining strength. We ask that you would do this work that you alone can do. We turn to you and appeal to you to this end. Through Christ we pray. Amen. The Bible is a tale of two cities. These two cities represent two communities of people distinguished primarily by their relationship to God. Man City, we have learned through these weeks, pulsates with great energy flourishing with innovation and ingenuity and the skillful exercise of dominion over the earth. But man's city is fueled by self-love, by self-exaltation, by false worship and defiance of God. And it is epitomized by Babylon in the early chapters of Genesis and then again in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. By contrast, God's city is marked by the love of God, by the true worship of God on His terms, and by God's very presence. And as we have witnessed in this series, these two cities live in tension with one another across the entire stretch of salvation history. This tension comes to critical head in the final book of Scripture, We read in Revelation chapter 18 of the fall of Babylon and in chapters 21 and 22 of the new Jerusalem. This is no accident. The Bible has been moving to this crisis, to this shift and change from its very earliest pages. Between these chapters of chapter 18 and the fall of Babylon and the New Jerusalem in chapter 21, we have chapter 19 and the return of Christ to defeat the armies of man's city. In chapter 20, Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron from Jerusalem's throne for 1,000 years, we read chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And then verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, a figure of speech. All the nations on earth will assemble to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, and they surrounded the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Babylon has fallen. All of the motivation 
behind Babylon, all of the evil that fueled it, is now separated from the earth. For a thousand years, Christ reigns. Then, the great white throne, verse 11. Ending verse 14, where death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation 21, then, we come to an entirely new day. The millennial reign of Christ has ended, this 1,000-year period where the curse is removed and Christ rules over the nations of the earth, yet proving that despite all the right circumstances, once Satan is released for that short period of time, people follow him and attack Christ again. Now all of that kingdom turned over to the Father, we enter in chapter 21 to a new world into the eternal state, the final stage of the chapter of God's redemptive purposes. Then I saw a new heaven, John writes, and a new earth in chapter 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A new heaven, a new earth, merge at the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. And the key to it all is verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is the epitome of it all, to be in the presence of God to be prepared with our names in the Lamb's book of life, to enter into His presence and to dwell with Him through all eternity in this state where all sin is removed and all sinners are separated. After the overview of verses 1-8, through John is given a glorious look at this eternal city where God dwells with His people forever. We pick it up there at verse 9 with a description of the eternal city. So it's been stated, now more careful description. Verse 9, we see its descent, first of all, in verses 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, who is this angel, and what is the significance of it? We'll not get back into the rest of the book and how this angel participates in the judgments that God sends, but I would encourage you to turn back to chapter 17. Because there's the linkage here that we cannot miss. Chapter 17, verse 1 Chapter 17, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of what? Of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Verse 18 of chapter 17. It was symbolism. Here's the interpretation. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So this angel, at least one of those seven, perhaps the same angel, shows to John a prostitute symbolic of a city. 
And that city, Babylon, now falls in chapter 18. Come back to 21 and verse 9. It is no accident that this same angel, or at least one of the same seven, with the seven bowls of God's judgment and the last plagues on earth, says, Come, and I will show you another woman. Not a prostitute, but the wife of God. Symbolic, again, of a city. The city now, not Babylon, driven by the glory of man and the pride of man, but now the city of God, the new Jerusalem. I'll show you this bride of the Lamb. Verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. High mountain provides a vantage point from which John gains the perspective to view the descent of this massive city, larger than any we have ever known in this world. If John stood on the plain, he'd be like a a little minnow in this great river looking up and seeing the bottom of a ship that's coming out of dry dock and landing right on top of him. I mean, he wouldn't get any perspective at all. It would just look like this big thing coming down. John is placed here on this high mountain, so from that vantage point, he can take in the significance of this city and see it descending from heaven. From his mountain perch, John sees it descend in all of its splendor from God onto the new earth. We see its descent and secondly, its appearance in verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is the first, this jasper clear as crystal, the first of many references to precious stones in this chapter. We're not going to take the time to identify each stone, to talk about its color, talk about its characteristics, because in fact the ancient terminology is much broader than ours. We have more specific names for specific jewels. And so we're not entirely sure precisely what each of these jewels is, and there's maybe some good reason for that. If we had the precision of it, we might do weird things with it. So at any rate, we just, have, just so you know, when you read sapphire, it may not be just what you think of as sapphire. But there are undoubtedly these jewels and that are mentioned throughout. And here, jasper clear as crystal, there is a beauty here that is almost beyond description. The city sparkles with stunning beauty, illumined from within by God's glory. The brightness of God's presence within the city is so intense that the entire city shines and sparkles with it. I mean, think of it. We can be virtually mesmerized by looking at one small jewel. You ever been to the Smithsonian Institute, Washington, D.C., and see the Hope Diamond? I mean, people shuffle past that thing day after day after day to look at the beauty of this great diamond. Imagine that multiplied through this whole city. There is a splendor here that is utterly mesmerizing. The entire city, the quality of a rare jewel. We look at the city here, often from our vantage point on the hills of Burnsville, don't we? We look down at Minneapolis or up to it or whatever, but it's off there in the distance. And what do you see? Sometimes when the sun is rising or setting, you see the glass. 
or you see the cement. And it's pretty impressive. But this city is illumined from within like a crystal clear jewel. We've never seen anything like this. And it's not illumined by the sun outside of it. It's not illumined like the Hope Diamond by light bulbs outside, but it's illumined from within by the very glory of God. The physical, visible evidence of all of His perfections illumine the city. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. The great walls of the city create a boundary of demarcation. Unlike walled cities of the fallen planet, these walls keep no one out. They're not defensive in nature. These walls mark sacred space, standing in regal, sparkling splendor to define this as God's city. It has 12 gates. There's awe-inspiring beauty in that uh, of of a single pearl. Don't think of a gate swinging on a hinge made out of pearl. Think of a pearl. A round pearl with a tunnel through it. That's the idea. The the ancient gate didn't swing on a hinge. It wasn't uh, like a door like we think of it, but it was an entry point. It was a portal. It was a gate. Often there would be rooms even on the sides and rooms over the top as you entered through this gate. It was a place where it was kind of like coming out of a tunnel. We see that this time of year if you watch any football games. A team comes running out of the tunnel, out of this narrow passageway in the darkness and then into the fullness of the light of the stadium. There's some sense of that here. Each gate, a pearl, there's, there's this awesome anticipation as you pass through this gate and then into this great sparkling city. There's only three on a side. When we think of the length of this, we'll get to that in a bit, the size of the city, the fact that there's only three gates on a side almost demands that they are going to be busy places. Lots of traffic here at these places. Exciting places, if we want to put it that way. And these gates are attended by 12 angels. As with the walls, the angels are not stationed there to keep anyone out. They stand there in a sense like greeters whose presence heightens the regal wonder of the city for all who enter these gates and perhaps bid farewell to those who leave or perhaps just stand silently serving the Lord. We don't know. The twelve tribes of Israel with their names over these gates, that helps to locate the gates for the inhabitants that are there to connect with others, to know where they're at in location in the city. It's a reminder of God's saving purposes in Old Testament history as well. The election of Israel, the long-suffering kindness and covenantal love of the Lord will be there displayed in the names of these gates. Verse 14, And the walls of the city had twelve foundations. On them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I don't know if this is 12 courses of foundation or if there is a foundation stone that connects from each gate to the next, just one solid stone of jewel. But however we take it, it is 
awe-inspiring. And the names of the twelve apostles are on these stones, an eternal reminder of God's saving purposes in history through the incarnation, the life, the sacrificial death, and the vicarious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here the New Testament era is forever commemorated in the apostles' names. And it, I think, is fair to note here, the church is not the twelve tribes of Israel. There is some distinction here, or this makes no sense. Both the old covenant Israel and the new covenant body of Christ will have permanent historical recognition in this eternal city. History salvation is displayed symbolically in these names but I see no reason not to take this as literally in these names as well. And of course, the whole emphasis here falls in verse 14 upon the Lamb, the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the substitute God provides to die in the place of sinners, to pay the cost of our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God, the apostles of the Lamb, whose work is the entry into this city for all who believe contrast is with chapter 20 and verse 15 with chapter 21 and verse 8 those whose names are not written in the lamb's book of life who are set out of this city and will never have any opportunity to pass into it we see then thirdly its measurements verse 15 it gets more and more specific from its descent as it hovers from heaven down to earth, and its appearance here. We look now at its measurement, verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles. This is a huge, huge city. The parameters are about equivalent to two-thirds of the continental United States. That's the city, but it's the city. There is, I believe, very possibly other cities, but this is the city. So it makes sense that it is very sizable. There will be other cities on earth, but this is the city that will be capable of holding and servicing all believers of all history. It's going to need to be large, thankfully. It's a narrow way of entry into it, and the majority Christ has taught us will not be here, but there will be a large number of those that are, and so a very large city. It's a magnificent city of unprecedented size, but also of untold wonders. It's a perfect cube. We don't understand the height, how that works. If that's just where the illumination is over that area, or if there is life lived up above, we don't really know what that means, but 1,400 miles in all four directions, a, a perfect cube. And it reminds us of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, which was 15 by 15 by 15. Or in the temple, which was 30 by 30 by 30 in the Holy of Holies. We have now the Holy of Holies is the city. You enter into the very presence of God as you walk through these gates and He he is there in that city, verse 3. The city of God is now God's city. Such that entrance into this city is entrance into the Holy of Holies. 
Verse 17, he also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So don't try to think of it any other way. It's just, it's just your measurement. What a cubit is to you is what this angel is using, and it's a real measurement, and it's 144 cubits. I want to just take a quick sideline here. We hit it just briefly in our adult class today, but let me come back to that. And I've got to stop here because there's a lot of good Christian brothers and sisters that would stop me here and say, you are way off track. Many Bible scholars take all of these features, all of these measurements as figurative. Not real walls, not real gates, not a real city coming down. All of this is just understood to just be a a figure of speech. But the problem with that way of interpretation is that there is utterly no agreement on what the symbolism is supposed to mean. The walls are interpreted by symbolic scholars as all kinds of different things. And as you begin to read it, you start to say, they don't really know what it is. It's just meant to be a happy place. There's certainly much symbolism in the features of this city. No one would deny that. But what in in a context demands that this is anything other than a literal city? This city is populated by resurrected bodies. They're real bodies. The resurrection is real. Resurrection bodies are real. They are literal bodies. The new earth is related to the old earth, or it wouldn't be called the new earth. The new Jerusalem. To be anything other than a mirage is related to the old Jerusalem, which was a very real city. The Lamb is Jesus, the literal, real, risen, and reigning Christ. The glory. Do we just make it a picture? Or does it really shine through the city? We cannot let an allegorical interpretation turn everything into only symbolism. Walls are walls, and foundations are foundations, and gates are gates, and measuring sticks are measuring sticks. Like the ones we use on earth. And I think Jesus leads us here himself as well when he says in John 14, I am going to prepare a place for you he doesn't say and 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 could and scripture indicates this that we will be in the presence of god that's gloriously true verse 3 of chapter 21 and all of this vision but jesus says not just you will be in my presence that's the biggest point but he also says i'm going to prepare a place Language leads us to one conclusion. A place is a place. It's a location. It's a thing. In his book on heaven, Randy Alcorn asked the question so cleverly this way. But he says, suppose God wanted to convey that the city really is 1,400 miles wide and deep and high. What else would we expect him to say besides what this passage says? How else could he say it than what is here? Now, back to the point then, and maybe just say one more thing on this. Where there is symbolism, the text of Scripture makes that clear. 
You've already caught that in what we've discussed this morning. There is symbolism in the prostitute. The prostitute's not actually a literal woman. It's Babylon. But the text tells us that. There's symbolism here in the bride. The bride doesn't wear a dress. The bride is symbolic of the new Jerusalem. But the text guides us there. And so where we see symbolism, we want to recognize it. And there's symbolism all over here. All of these twelves. You've caught that, right? The gates and the apostles and, 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 and the tribes of Israel and the, hundred and, uh, and the 144 cubits and all of it. There's, there's factors of 12 all throughout here. There's symbolism here that doesn't mean it's not a real city. So as I said earlier this morning to this class, I wear on my hand a ring. It's a symbol of my covenantal fidelity to Beth. It symbolizes something. It's real. I could drop it here and it would ping and roll away and you'd know it was real. So what is symbolic or what has symbolism doesn't have to necessarily be just ethereal, smoke and mirrors, ghost-like. This is a real city. Now back to that point of the walls, speaking of the walls, they're going to be quite short. They're only a little over 200 feet high. That's about 21 stories high, which as you walk next to it is going to be utterly, fascinatingly mesmerizing. 20 stories, these walls. But when you step back and consider that it's 1,400 miles in one direction, that's not going to look so high. I think that says something to us. On the ground, such height is stunningly impressive, but encompassing a city of this size will define the holy space. It will not prove architecturally overwhelming. The point's not the wall. The wall defines the space. The point is what's in the space and the glory that is emitting from the city. Number four, its features. Verse 18, its features. The wall was built of jasper like the city while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The street does not mean there's no other streets, but it's probably what the Romans called the cardo, the main street, the main thoroughfare. They loved to line theirs with great pillars, and they were places of congregation, gathering, and transportation by walking. It's probably what is meant here, but it might also be that the singular street is a reference just to streetage in the whole city, that all of it is of gold. But uh, what we are seeing here is really difficult to visualize, but we're in no danger of overestimating the glorious beauty and the pulsating vibrancy of this city. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot not said here. 
But I just think if we could get to it and we could feel the warmth of it and hear the sounds of it and see the busyness of it, it'll all come to life in a way this text doesn't bother doing. Because I don't know that we could grasp it. It's a succinct statement to say this is a place and this is a destiny. Now many people, especially in the West, like our space. And many of us don't like big crowded cities. And so we might think about this eternal destiny and say, I don't, I don't like this city. There's a few things on that, but a couple of points as to just to think through why we don't like cities. One is the beauty of nature compared to the cement jungles of our cities. We like to see trees and mountains and rivers and oceans and the beauty of nature out there. And sometimes we get down in among the building and it's just cold cement. Especially today, you could probably freeze solid walking downtown Minneapolis. It's just not, not as beautiful as being outside somewhere. The second reason we don't like cities is the presence of sin in the city. But this new Jerusalem, this new Garden of Eden will boast far more natural beauty than anything you have set your eyes on in this cursed planet. There will be gardens and there will be parks and there will be features in it that will blow us away as to the beauty of the nature that's within. And it is a city filled with the glory of God. It's a city where there is great activity, but there's no sin. It's a place bustling with activity as people exercise dominion over every inch of it to the glory of God. This is why we were recreated. This is back to Eden. This is back to subduing the earth with perfection and no curse and no sinners. You're going to want to be in the city. What do you love about the city? Whatever legitimately brings you joy is multiplied beyond imagination in this place. And what do you hate about the city? It's all gone. Imagine a city where there's no crime. There's no pollution. There's no sirens or panhandlers or pickpockets or false evangelists or car breakdowns or accidents or, Lord willing, no cars at all. But certainly if there are, there's no traffic jams or if it ever gets crowded, you are sinless and filled with love for everyone who's in your way. In fact, what will prove most different of all in this city is you. It's you. It's me. We will come alive in this vibrant city, teeming with masses of sinless beings and glorified bodies laboring for God's glory. And every person, every person you see will be a brother or sister you're longing to meet. Everyone. Not someone to fear, not someone to avoid, not someone who wants something from you illegitimately, not someone who is on their way to sin or involved in sin or seeking to sin at your expense. Nothing of that. All brothers and sisters who know Christ the Savior and you long to meet them. Like children watching their first parade or fireworks show, you will never be able to get enough of this glorious and vibrant city. But beyond all these wonders will be the utter joy that radiates off your face literally as this place radiates with the brilliant presence of Christ. God's glory radiating from within will radiate off of all that is here. 
That's a description of this eternal city. We look now even more pointedly, secondly, at the life of the eternal city in verse 22. The life of the eternal city. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Every ancient city had a temple. Israel's temple existed to keep sinners at proper distance from God, that His holiness not destroy them as they came into His presence. And in a manner of speaking, the temple of Israel also kept God away from sinners. That He would not be corrupted in His holiness, in a manner of speaking. So Israel's temple protected sinners from God and protected God from sinners. All had to be done with ritual approach, and none of that is now necessary. We will walk in God's holy presence without sin and thus without fear. There will be no temple. There are other missing features which characterize the eternal city as well. Verse 23, the city has also no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb, a symbol of Christ, a real person. The illumination coming from Him, symbolizing much, all of His perfections, and yet being literal light. It will be a light that draws people to it, in fact, verse 24. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. There is a curious verse. By its light the nations will walk. I think the idea of that is just as the sun illumines all of us, allows us all to walk about in the light, the light will be Christ. And all of the nations of all of the earth will be, it will be, it will be illumined by the person of our Savior, by God Himself. How that works out, triunity, is beyond us. But by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I think here's just one place among many where we really aren't on the biblical page when it comes to eternity. Who are these kings and where are their nations? Some would take this and say, well, that's all talking about right now. We're going a different direction with that, but I think there's a good answer for who these kings are and the earth that they are governing to the glory of God. They bring their glory into it, verse 25, and we'll come back to this, but its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The existence of nations and the existence of kings indicates that life will be lived beyond the walls of the city. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. It means that nations will exist outside the city and God will assign responsibilities to govern and operate faithful cities throughout the earth and people will travel from those nations to the new Jerusalem. The gates are for passage you will come in. There's no need for a gate if you never go out. Just be walls and we're all inside. But the gates and the cities and the nations indicate that there's life outside and people walk in the glory of God outside the gate. So the picture that we have is of a city that really operates as a place of attraction. People of diverse cultures bringing their glories into the new city all the time. 
I don't know, and I, I hope to speak humbly here, I don't know all the answers. I don't see this all for what it is. We, we, we don't really know until we're there. But as I travel from time to time in international airports, one of the joys of it is watching the groups of people that come from different places. And you know they come from different places. Some of them, because they're in a group of 30, and they all have traditional dress. They're coming from some other country, some other place. They all look alike, and they're so different from the group over here. And you see these groups coming from different parts of the world with their different dress, their different looks, their different cultures. And I look at that and I find that fascinating. And we might conclude that as we enter into heaven, all of that goes away. There's just one culture, and we're influenced by our world, which says we're all wearing white robes, we're all carrying around harps. We all have a crown on our head. We all speak the same language, sing the same song, look exactly alike. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And the indication here is that there's going to be life outside the city coming back to the city and going back again. And there may well be more diversity in this world than we see now. But as we look at the diversity of our world and we appreciate it and enjoy it and like the distinction of different peoples, I don't know that heaven means that all goes away. And this is one of the indications of it. There's no reason to believe that our fascination will end here. But I don't know. Will there be one language, one dress, one form of expression and song? This verse may indicate that the eternal city will boast more fascination and diversity than we've known. In any event, in the cultures of the world, if there are continuing distinctions, there will be no ignorance feeding any cultural distinction. There will be no sinful roots to the cultural expressions on the new earth. But there is little reason to believe that the nations will all look exactly alike. Whatever the case, the city gates will repeatedly swell with travelers passing in and out. Yet as they pass through gates of pearl, we are assured, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the only people in the city. That's the only people on this new earth as heaven has come down and merged in this eternal state. No sinners, no sin. Only those redeemed by Christ will enter this amazing world and dwell with God forever. Let me make just a few comments and then we will come before the table here in a few moments. There's a lot that rides on the interpretation of this passage and we recognize we differ with other brothers and sisters in how we take the text. I think we must plow forward with humility. We must recognize we don't know everything and we could have this wrong on some levels. I think it encourages our meditation, however. And I would encourage you to meditate on this eternal city. Where heaven is now is temporary, but it is undoubtedly modeled on this same theme, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So those who die and go before us are entering in with full consciousness of who they are into the presence of the Lord, into His eternal city. It's just not this city yet. 
of resurrected bodies. There's still more to come, but they're in that world as they come to heaven. I think we should meditate on this and meditate on the wonders of what, this, of what heaven is and what this eternal state will be. And while the measurements and features of the city are undoubtedly symbolic, there's no reason to believe that the city is not a literal city, as a wedding ring is both symbolic and literal. Many commentators tell us that nothing in this chapter is real. But there is nothing in this chapter that points us to that conclusion. There is no indication in the text that John describes a symbolic city. In fact, the symbolism's already there. It's a bride. That points us to the fact that that's the symbolism. The reality is the city. And if the city is real, connected some way to the old Jerusalem, or there'd be no use for the name, then in some way the walls and the gates and the angels and the measurements are a real city. They'll be more real than anything we've known. Secondly, the nature of eternity then leads us to that, con- to, to that contemplation. The popular idea that we will escape this corrupt earth for a ghost-like existence, a set of wings and a harp. The idea that we will spend all of our eternal lives bouncing around on fluffy clouds attending never-ending worship services is, is about as ridiculous as it sounds. There is a heaven. Believers of the ages who die enter God's presence. They are there until the resurrection of the body. But heaven, wherever that may be now, is not our final destination. Our final destination is the new earth merged with the new heaven. And serving as the nerve center of that world is this new Jerusalem where God will dwell forever with His people. That means, if we're on track with all of this, that world will be every bit as physical and real as the one you're in. We will work, we will play, we will subdue the earth. We will laugh and dance and talk and celebrate. We will eat and drink and travel and recreate. We will exercise dominion of a curse-free world for the glory of God. We will leave the city on adventures beyond description. And we'll return to the city on adventures beyond description. In this city, in this coming world, our resurrected bodies will feel no pain, perfect health, Strength like we've never known. We will think and reason with a depth of thought our cloudy minds have never yet experienced. We'll never quit learning. We'll never quit growing. We'll never stop developing this glorious world. It won't be that it's complete and you sit there on a chair and stare at it. It will be complete as it stands, but it will be perfected throughout all eternity, just as Eden was to be. And so those of you who can't imagine sitting around on vacation the rest of forever and never working or playing or running or exercising or any of that, don't worry. Don't worry. In this city, in this coming world, our bodies will be different, our minds will be different, our imagination will be different but it won't look anything like the cartoons. So if you want to know what heaven is like 
You want to know where we are going. You will turn your thoughts to it in reality, not by looking up at the sky and seeing the clouds. Nothing wrong with that. But what you'll gain most is by looking around and seeing the life you're in now. But imagine it with no sin. Imagine it in the presence, the literal presence and glowing beauty of God. We will gather to sing and worship God, yes, but we will do much more. We will do everything else that we now honorably enjoy, but free of the sin. And when we come to worship, it will be the pinnacle of our experience as we have those opportunities whenever God lays those out on our schedule for us and wherever we are on the new earth. And so let me just say thirdly, as far as the focus of the believer then, an emphasis that grows dull in the minds of earthly-minded Christians is the concept of heaven because we are so influenced by other things. We need to bring our focus to what the Scriptures have revealed. And one objection in this that seems to just nod our conscience is that we'll become so heavenly-minded we're no earthly good. If we become genuinely, biblically, heavenly-minded, then we don't think of ourselves sitting on a chair and staring at perfection, or maybe singing a song forever. If we see it rightly, we'll understand its vibrancy, its work, what we will be doing to serve Christ throughout all eternity. And when we see it that way, it affects the way we see this earth. Lewis famously observed that it has been the people who think most of heaven who have accomplished the most in changing the world we now occupy. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. In his book, Weight of Glory, he said, because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. Because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. And I want to encourage you, believer, as Paul puts it to the Philippians, this is your home. Our citizenship not only will be here, our citizenship is here. This is our place. And what we see around us, we are to touch and take forward to the glory of God, but this is not our final place. This is not where our citizenship is. We are passing through here as salt and light, but our citizenship is in heaven. It is in the presence of the Lord. It is in this eternal city. This is my final home. This is my final destiny. And everything that I do is to be ordered toward this end. And when it is rightly ordered that way, I'll live in this world better than anyone else. Better than those who know no future world. May God bring us there. If you know not Christ as your Savior, if you, have not, if you don't have confidence that your name is in the Lamb's book of life, this future, this beauty, this destiny is not yours. But it can become yours. At least as we think of it, humanly speaking, it can become yours. You can become aware of your citizenship in this place 
when you come to the Lamb. The Lamb who dies sacrificially to pay the penalty of our sin. The Lamb who is Jesus Christ and whose resurrection power can give you life, a life that will never end and that will carry out in this place. That's not being so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. That is knowing who we are. That is saying, I know my identity. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. And I know who God is through Christ. If you don't know that, you don't have that confidence today, you can have it before you leave. We can't give it to you. I don't know how God will lead you through it, but I would encourage you to seek help today and counsel and prayer that you would come to know the Lamb. And we gather then as God's people around this table to rejoice in the Lamb, to rejoice in the one who bore the penalty of our sin. Lord, we give thanks to you for having done that and for the prospect that is before us. We can't make this happen in our own spirits, so we just pray that this truth would make every effort to handle disease be transformed that all the suffering in our life would be transformed by this vision. That our fight and battle with sin would be informed and strengthened by our knowledge of what is to come. I pray that we as a church would live with hope and confidence in what you have promised. And we pray in behalf of those who are separated from Christ. I pray that you'd bring them to a knowledge of Jesus today. But as we gather now around this table, we ask that you would allow us to focus on the Lamb whose death and resurrection is our entrance into this great final city. It's not because of what we have done, but it's because of what He has done. And in the hope of Christ's work, We take these elements to identify with Him and we rejoice together to be able to say by Your grace, this city is our home because You are our God. May there be great joy as we eat these elements together today, identifying with Jesus crucified, risen, reigning, coming again, and of our presence with You forever through His work. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.